Welcome to the Campus Reach Podcast on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network. I'm your host, Keith Darrell. This is episode eight, Apologetics. I don't know. went forth to sow, bearing precious seed in his hand, hoping and hope that he might see it grow. That's the All Say Freak Band bringing us into the Campus Reach Podcast, a podcast designed to encourage and equip you in the work of evangelism. And that's what I do on a daily basis. My name is Keith Darrell. I am usually somewhere in the United States on a college campus Monday through at least Thursday, every now and then on a Friday, publicly preaching the gospel in the public arena or the public square, seeking to engage uh, the believer as well as the unbeliever on really any issue under the sun. We believe that Jesus Christ is Lord, and as a creator and sustainer of the universe, we believe that his lordship uh, rules and reigns over all things, and that Jesus, as the logos of God, is uh, kind of the rational mind backing the cosmos. And so when we're studying our science, our mathematics, our languages, uh, ethics, and all that sort of stuff, uh, we fundamentally believe that all these things are rooted in Christ Jesus, and we are out on a college campus evangelizing calling men and women to repentance and faith in God's only Son and seeking to expand his kingdom uh, through public proclamation of the word, as well as meeting with people one-on-one and everything else. And one of the means that we seek to do that, hopefully, is, or maybe not us immediately, but indirectly, encouraging you guys to do some evangelism, equipping you guys to evangelism, uh, that the kingdom of God will grow, because we believe that uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. And as we're able to get the word of God out, we are able to uh, you know, basically advance the kingdom. God's pleased with the fullness of what is preached to change men's hearts and minds. And that's one of the reasons I joined the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network is I believe it's uh, one more platform to help us get the word of God out. And so we do ask you to uh, run over to crosspolitic.com or I guess Google on over to crosspolitic.com and become a club member and consider supporting uh, our network here that we might be able to grow and expand and get more resources and better resources into people's hands. And um, that's what we're seeking to do here. So welcome this week to our podcast. We're going to discuss apologetics and the apologetic of I don't know. And so the the past couple weeks, uh, as I mentioned last week, have been really good on campus. And last week was a little bit slower, but then today was a, a really good day, kind of a smaller crowd on a windy, blustery Uh, Not quite wet, but not a great day in Southern California. And uh, But it was a day where the students who gathered were largely just wanted to be attentive, and the students just wanted to learn, and they asked really good questions. And actually, one of the, one of the funny parts, a, a girl who kind of helped get a little bit of the crowd going was a feminist. I never caught her name, um, but she was kind of a typical postmodern uh, feminist, and one of, my, one of my little proud spots was um, her boyfriend apparently came over and was none too pleased that... Uh, he was, uh, she was engaging uh, with me and blah, blah, blah. And so he comes over and he starts uh, wrangling with her and pulls her away and uh, kind of fortunately everybody uh, realized I was joking, but uh, I encouraged them in being an alpha, alpha male. And uh, that, uh, I, was, I was impressed uh, that, a campus, that a campus filled with betas at least has one alpha male that he would uh, be willing to pull his girl away from the conversation. And so fortunately uh, people understood that I was joking. Uh, that was the intent of it. But um, she, she largely uh, got the crowd going a little bit on issues of basically pluralism and equality, and I was pushing back on those ideas. One of the things that's kind of fascinating with what I do is how the, the, there's always a hot-button issue, and especially in our current climate, it seems to change every 24 hours. So if anything, the hard part is keeping up with uh, all the topics that come up. But the last few weeks, abortion has actually been a regular topic on a college campus. And my nature is to be contrarian, so I don't always chase whatever I think the 
topic of the day is, or I'm hesitant to take the Christian position in the sense of, I feel like, oh, it's common sense. The Christian talks about gay marriage or the Christian talks about uh, abortion. And so my proclivity is to not want to talk about those things because everybody expects me, especially the campus preacher, um, to really lean into those things. And so my MO is to try to avoid those things as best I can. But you reach a certain point where the absurdity of abortion in America needs to be addressed, and then you throw in what New York is doing, Virginia is doing, and stuff like that. And then the students are talking about it, so it's able uh, to talk to, to address those issues. And I was going to spend a little bit more time on abortion, but we're going to talk about that next week. But one of the things that was actually kind of fascinating um, with the girl uh, one of the girls today who brought up abortion was uh, pushing the abortion issue. Is uh, we we kind of covered most of the topics, and what I'm and what I like I kind of mentioned last week. My apologetic in, in many ways is predicated on the idea that God is life. So the reason Christians oppose abortion is because we believe that God is life, and that an innocent life should their blood should not be shed. Now, obviously, the unbeliever and I we disagree on when life begins, because even the unbeliever. One of the things we're trying to get them to admit is, yes, uh, life is valuable. Okay, and where we draw that line. And so as a Christian, you know, kind of the old, we have a standard at the time of birth. For the unbeliever, it gets a little more guesswork, and now they're up to basically the point of death. And there's a uh, man by the name of Peter Singer who's an ethicist at uh, Princeton. He basically thinks up to 21 days post-birth it's okay to uh, possibly uh, kill the baby. So anyway, as, as we're debating abortion, I'm trying to bring these things out and get them to play their cards, and then I kind of lean in. So once they play a certain card, I'm trying to lean in and show why that can't be the standard. And one of the things that was kind of fascinating was how quickly today all the students kind of admitted one of the things that they brought up, I, I mentioned that 76% of all mentally retarded uh, babies uh, in the womb are aborted here in the United States. And one of the students brought up suffering. And you know, went back and forth on the idea of suffering. And one of the things laid out for them, though, is, is and a, again, this doesn't necessarily mean abortion's wrong or that this is actually wrong, but it's one of those things that they want to pause on because if suffering becomes a standard, then we definitely have to make suicide a viable option for an 18 to 22-year-old. And no one on a college campus really wants to say, yes, abortion's a viable option for 18 to 22-year-old. But if you're going to argue for suffering, that the child might be suffering in some way, shape, or form. And so per perhaps aborting the baby, killing the baby, murdering the baby, is a means of stopping the suffering. So maybe it's a net good. Sure, it might be bad to stop the, the child's life, but it might be a net good because, well, you know, we don't want the child to suffer. And so, well, mentally, what if someone on a college campus is suffering? Should they go ahead and commit suicide? And uh, everyone was like, no. And uh, so and they kind of saw the point that they have to be open, logically they have to be open to the idea that abortion or that suicide is an option for a college student who believes that in some way, shape, or form their suffering is just too great. And you know, normally it's very hard to get a group of students to admit that that is uh, logically consistent, but I thank God that today they all stepped back and said, yeah, uh, it's logically consistent to say we have to put suicide on the table. Again, that doesn't necessarily prove suicide's wrong. It was kind of funny because for a minute, they thought that that was my position, that uh, anybody on a college campus should be committing suicide. And I had to let them know that I'm not trying to uh, start a death cult and that if uh, any newspapers tomorrow are saying that the campus preacher was encouraging people to commit suicide, uh, that was not, in fact, the case. And so I, I planned on uh, spending a little bit of time tonight 
discussing abortion and some of the rhetoric that I use on a college campus, as well as just some of the ideas of where we go about for a pro-life perspective. And so that's what I was thinking about doing. And then I actually received an email this afternoon that I thought was very helpful in many ways and enables me to discuss a handful of topics hopefully in a a short, concise fashion that will be helpful to you in your apologetics. And the email that I received was this, was uh, basically the gentleman says, I entered a debate on Facebook with an unbeliever over the authority of scripture in life. How would you address if he is giving a, how would you address the issue if he's giving a bunch of examples of historians saying events and scriptures don't match historical accounts like battles and such? How do you navigate things like that when someone on campus says something along those lines. So uh, that's a great, great question because the reality of it is I don't know everything about the Bible. I like to think I know a lot about the Bible. I wouldn't be publicly preaching if I had no strands of the Bible. And many of us obviously have become believers without having read the entire Bible. And so we hear the gospel. It makes sense to us. Yep, I'm a sinner. The death, the burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ seems to be the remedy for that. And then for the first time in your life, you might pick up Leviticus or Joshua and Judges and Kings and all that sort of stuff. And you just begin to read, and as a Christian, you begin to believe it. And then suddenly you're in a context, especially if you go off to a secular university and you're taking some sort of Bible class and the history of the Bible, you're going to bump into things where people will say that we cannot trust the Bible because, uh, for example, they would just say there's no archaeological evidence that the Exodus ever occurred or that there's a judgment upon Egypt and all these people would have had to die off in Egypt. There's no signs of the ancient world that these things actually happened. There are no signs that Israelites wandered around the desert for 40 years and things along those lines. And so you're going to have to have an apologetic for that. And that's why I titled tonight's thing Apologetics. I don't know. So how do, how do I handle something in the Bible along those lines? And now it's actually twofold. So I'm, I'm going back to when I first started preaching. Back in 2000 was the first time I ever preached at Slippery Rock University, and I just went out there, started the preaching, and much of my MO and my angle is actually a bit more philosophical than a straight-up evidential. And by evidential, uh, the, the distinction I would make is, is basically this. If, in the most simple terms, if I, you wanted to prove to somebody that you have $100 in your pocket and you're sitting there having a debate with them, uh, what you do is you reach in your pocket, you pull out the $100. And so if you're not willing to show them the $100, uh, for the most part, everybody in that discussion is going to agree that it's reasonable that you have not demonstrated, at the least, have not demonstrated that you have $100 in your pocket. Uh, that would be something that's basically verifiable by means of you pulling out of your pocket. Now, there are other things that we have to uh, demonstrate logically or by a little less certainty that we're going to understand as a little less certainty with regards to history. So almost universally, everybody agrees that George Washington's president, uh, but if somebody wanted to really second-guess that, it's kind of common sense in our culture, but if someone really wanted to second-guess that, how you'd go about establishing that would be uh, another uh, method than straight up, you're not going to pull George Washington out of your pocket uh, by any stretch of the imagination. So uh, then you're going to have some uh, more philosophical discussions uh, regarding the nature of logic and ethics and these sorts of things that are also not going to be Uh, immediately verifiable uh, through one of the senses. And so when we're doing our apologetic, we have to realize who it is that we're talking to and how they're arguing to us, arguing against us. And from there, how we want to use language and rhetoric and that sort of stuff that's at least somewhat persuasive to them in some way, shape, or form. And I had the benefit very early on in my Christian life. So I became a believer in 93. 2000, I started publicly preaching. And that's when I took a semester off of 
uh, my seminary, and I ran around, preached for 15 weeks, and I would buy books, and the internet uh, really was not a huge... Uh, it, you didn't have a smartphone at the time, so you had to go to a laptop computer at the very least or go to the library to uh, study resources. And so as I traveled around, I would buy books, but I didn't have tons of internet resources. Nowadays, fortunately, we have tons of internet resources. But then when I returned to seminary in 2001, and once a week I'd go out to the University of Missouri to preach, and every week one of the best things I learned very early on in my apologetic was to say, I don't know. So a student shows up, starts asking me questions, uh, I would have two methods that would buy me time. If someone showed up and asked a really fancy philosophical question and I had no idea what they were talking about, my little buying time sort of thing was, oh, that's a really great question. Would you mind explaining that in a way where everybody here could understand it? And that way, uh, he would have to, he'd either end up showing that he did not actually understand what it was that he was talking about, or he'd present the argument in basic layman's terms where I was suddenly aware of, oh, this is all he's arguing, and it's, uh, it's a bit of a paper tiger. And so that would be kind of one stall technique. And the other one is if they ask me a straight-up question, especially when it comes to the Bible. The Bible tells us, A, uh, history seems to tell us non-A, how do we bring those two things together, or what do I do with those two things? And to be honest with you, my answer uh, more often than not back then was simply, I don't know, but I'll go home, I'll study it, and I'll be back next week. And so if you are doing apologetics and someone brings up something that you have no idea what they're talking about, your best apologetic in that moment in time is to simply say, I don't know. You don't have to cook up an answer. They're not going to fall away. You're not going to lose them by saying, I don't know. You're probably going to be more apt to lose them by being defensive and coming up with some, you know, kind of rope-a-dope and shuffling your feet sort of thing. And and they're going to pick up on the idea that you don't really know what you're talking about. So a number of years ago, I was preaching with a guy that I'm only acquainted with him. I don't really know him well. And we, we were talked to a young man who is a biology major, and he was bringing up something very particular about biology. And I, to be honest with you, I, I simply can't know everything. So as he's laying out his biological argument, I'm going to be like, huh, that's interesting. I don't know. And try to, in some way, shape, or form, interact with some of the things that I do know and what he's bringing up. But the, the man I was with, as this guy was pushing back on certain things he was arguing, uh, he ends up basically just saying... Uh, without even saying, I don't know, or good question, or anything like that, he ended up just kind of rebuking the guy and telling him that he needed to repent. And I would say that's actually the worst apologetic, because what it seems to suggest is, I'm not able to answer your question, and instead of answering the question, I'm going to make it spiritual and try to uh, play a position of power and just say you're wicked and call you to repentance, and it's your sin that makes you ask that question. And that's pretty intellectually dishonest, at the very least. Um, And we're much better off simply just saying, I don't know. And if there's anything in the Bible, even another situation one time, uh, a a friend of mine was asked a question, and he did not know what he was talking about when it comes to Leviticus. And and so the guy, the unbeliever, asked a question. Uh, My friend starts giving an answer on Leviticus, and so I was like, I can't let this slide. So I hop up and say something. And fortunately, in the the moment, my friend handled it well, but then once we finished it up, he ends up saying, uh, don't ever correct me in front of an unbeliever. Uh, Well, if you don't want to be corrected in front of an unbeliever, give them good information uh, or just say, I don't know. So my point is this. I can tell you those two stories to tell you this. Your best apologetic when you don't know what's going on is simply say, I don't know. So if you find yourself in a discussion with friends, family, coworkers, don't underestimate the power of you just saying, I don't know. Assuming for a second that doesn't sound way too Oprah Winfrey-ish. And so what you discover 
when you say, I don't know, I believe that we're in part fulfilling Peter's commandment that set apart Jesus Christ as Lord and always be prepared to give a reason for the hope that we have and to do it with gentleness and respect. And I think it actually shows respect for the unbeliever to simply say, I don't know. So from a first step, going back to the gentleman's question regarding how do we answer questions that seem to be you know, historical um, differences between, say, a biblical account of what's going on in the ancient world and then secular man's account of what happened in certain dates and why certain things can't fit. I think our first step, honestly, in part, if you don't know, is simply say, I don't know. And then you have your work cut out for you that if they ask you a specific question about Jericho, it's your responsibility to go find out about Jericho. And there are plenty of resources on the World Wide Web and libraries and everything else that with a little bit of effort, you'll be able to uh, find, or maybe a lot of effort, you'll be able to find the answer. And what you'll find is oftentimes there are difficulties that are not easy to clean up. And I want to ever so briefly touch on that. I try to keep this podcast uh, 15 to 20 minutes, but then you start talking, and you're like, ah, oh, easy, 15 minutes. And then you start talking, and then you're like, all right, we're, we're, we're coming in on uh, 20 20 minutes pretty quick. And so to try to make this as brief as possible, um, I am sympathetic to what's called presuppositional apologetics. And what that, what that is basically trying to say that the only reason the world is meaningful from an ethical standpoint, a scientific t- standpoint, a rational standpoint, is because at rock bottom, what's backing the universe, what's backing the cosmos is the logos of God, that God himself is rationality absolute pure rationality, and the reason we are in a meaningful universe and we're able to articulate things meaningfully and discuss history and justice and all that sort of stuff is because ultimately uh, God is back in the universe. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is back in the universe. And I'm, I'm basically sympathetic to that position. I think there are uh, problems with it, but by and large, I'm sympathetic to it. But the, the founder... Uh, I guess, of this school, if you want to call him a founder, is Cornelius Van Til. And that's kind of the, the man who set the trajectory of thought for that. And one of the beauties of Van Til compared to, say, street-level Van Tilians or street-level Bonsonites, because at this point, uh, the street level is largely um, the dumbing down. Bonson was kind of a mediator between Van Til, who's not that accessible, to try to make it accessible, that was Bonson. And then you have the people who take Bonson and try to make them even more street level. And it just really gets away from even the heart of Van Til. And that brings me um, to one aspect of uh, Van Til's thought. So one of the things that was kind of fascinating, he wrote an introduction uh, to a guy named B.B. Warfield, who's kind of a stalwart Calvinist. Uh, Van Til wrote an introduction to B.B. Warfield's book, uh, inspiration and Authority of Scripture, which is a phenomenal book. And in that introduction, he's talking about uh, the autograph. So the original letter that Paul penned to the church at Corinth, we no longer have. It no longer exists. Because it no longer exists, you have uh, the secular man saying, we don't know what the autograph said, in very simple terms. We don't know what the autograph said because we, there's no way for us to verify it. We can't go back and get them. Therefore, our argument regarding the infallibility and the inspiration of the autographs is kind of a meaningless debate because we can't pull the autographs out of our pocket. Since we can't pull our autographs out of our pocket, we have no autographs to say, look, everybody, here's Paul's autograph letter to the Corinthians. Therefore, here's what he meant. Here's what he said. And in the context of Van Til, he wants to say, well, the only reason we can do historical research is because a Christian God is true. And there's a certain strand... I want to fully affirm what he's saying. But, but 
hopefully that's not too distracting because what I want to get at is this. In that uh, letter or in that introduction to B.B. Warfield, Van Til says this. He says, orthodox regarding uh, critical uh, textual criticism and, and studying the text. He says, orthodox scholars therefore pursue the search for this text, the autographs, with enthusiasm. Each step they take in dealing with existing manuscripts removes some, he puts in quotes, difficulty, and should a few errors of detail remain unsolved in time to come, this does not discourage them. Uh, they have every right to believe that they are on the right road and that the end of their way is near at hand. And so uh, I give you that quote from this standpoint. As presuppositionalists and as Vantillians, which here at Fight, Laugh, Feast, we're largely sympathetic towards. I can't speak for them. I'm only speaking for me, but I'm definitely sympathetic. They might be more adamant than I am uh, on those issues. But but my point is this, that even Van Til understood, when we get to the nuts and bolts of a lot of these issues, there's a lot of difficulties. He does put it in quotes because he is convinced that ultimately God's back in the universe. And so in order to even do historical research, he's saying it's only meaningful in the context of Christianity. Therefore, we can, we'll get there. But he's admitting up front, Yes, there are difficulties. So that ties into our lesson today that when you're doing apologetics, you need to feel comfortable admitting there's difficulties, and oftentimes that means in a discussion saying, I don't know. Now, that's a very broad way of addressing the issues because without, without the particulars, it's hard to say if someone's broadly raising up an objection about Jericho to get into any historical archaeological debate regarding that. So without specifics, it's hard to address that issue. Um, but what I want to do is encourage you guys in a very simple way today that what that you don't need to know a lot to share the gospel. And I think that's often a hindrance because we think, man, what if they ask me a question I don't know? Amen. You're, you're actually in, in a good position to simply say, I don't know, go home, study, learn more. And this will help you grow in your faith because what you'll do is you'll get questions, you'll have no idea, you'll go home, study, and you're like, wow, we do have uh, answers to many of these things. Sometimes you'll come across things like, mm, still not satisfied. And I just want to say, in many ways, that is a fine place to be. Cornelius Van Til admits there's difficulties. Uh, Cornelius Van Til admits there may be a few outstanding errors. And so if Van Til's willing to admit that, he's smarter than I am. I'm willing to admit that as well. So that's our message here this week on the Fight, Laugh, Feast Network, uh, the Campus Preacher Podcast. And next week, uh, and if there's anything that I can clarify further on this, uh, feel free feel free to message me at Keith at CampusPreacher.com or on the Twitter, Campus Evangel, and I'll, I'll seek to uh, develop this a bit more clearly. If there are particular issues of his historicity uh, that you want to address, I will gladly uh, seek to address that more specifically. But as of right now, I hope to address uh, the issue of abortion. That might actually be two weeks because I want to look at a, uh, what a couple philosophers, uh, modern-day philosophers, are saying about those issues. But anyway, that's our message for this week. Uh, if you have any questions, comments, demands, rebukes, exhortations, feel free to reach out to me. God bless you. Bye. Behold, a sore went forth to sow, bearing precious seed in his hand, hoping and hope that he might see it grow. Knowing that the harvest might well